When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's a beautiful morning I think I'll go outside for a while And just smile Hello again, this is uh, Denny Somak. I'm a rock historian, producer, and best-selling author with thousands of interviews that I've conducted over the years. And in order to bring you some of the best I've created The Rock Podcast with Denny Somak. We're always adding new interviews, and on this episode, it's my conversation with Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, producer, songwriter, a founding member of The Rascals, one of the greatest American rock bands, and now author, Felix Cavallari. His uh, new autobiography, Memoir of a Rascal, is out and available at all the usual places. Felix talks about his beginnings with Joey D and the Starlighters, like when they played in Germany and an up-and-coming new British band opened for them, the Beatles. His amazing run of hits after he co-founded the Rascals, 18 top 40 hits, including five top 10, Groovin', Good Lovin', Beautiful Morning, How Can I Be Sure, People Gotta Be Free. You know them all. So here's my conversation with Felix from his home in Nashville. Hey, Felix, how you doing? Hey, man, how are you? Okay, my name is Denny Somak, and uh, we do a classic rock podcast. Excellent. And this this is going to be for two things. One, obviously, we're going to talk about the book and your career and everything. Uh, I'm also working, I don't know if you know this, but next year is the 75th anniversary of Atlantic Records. So ah. I've been asked to ask you a few questions about that. So we'll get to that a little bit later. Is that okay? Of course. Okay. All right. So uh, how you doing? Doing okay, man. Yeah, really hanging in there. We're getting back to work, which is always good. How about yourself? Good? I'm I'm doing fine. I'm in uh, South Florida, so. Nice. I I'm just great. left there. I just, we just did a couple of shows down there, yeah. I know. I saw you on the Flower Power cruise a couple of years ago, and I know oh, you're, you you're, you're still doing that. Yeah, I just came off of that cruise again. And yeah, it's great, isn't it? Uh, this time was uh, the people are just you know because of COVID they're 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 ready to they're ready to go crazy and you know yeah. they are going crazy they're having a blast. Yeah. So you finally put your book out. Right. My first question is going to be: Did you do it because you wanted to tell your story, <laughs> or because you wanted to set the record straight? Exactly. You got Which it. one? Second one. Okay. Yeah, so I, I've, been tell, I've been telling the story. We did a tour. We did. I mean, we did a Broadway show in. Uh, 2013 once a month. i saw it i saw it in philly oh good yeah and you know prior to that we were doing press conferences mm -hmm. and i noticed uh, that everyone had a different answer for the same question right and i said wait a second you know 
What is this? You know, uh, and and I've been telling it as a joke ever since. Did Custer win or lose that battle? I don't know. You know, <laughs> but I thought it was important that you know it, it kind of threw me because I say you know like w- wait a second you know like you can't just let things hang like that. So I started writing this you know uh, memoir so to speak, and then I realized wow you know I've been here for quite a few decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rascals, with all due respect, was only about five or six years of that time. Right. What about the other years? So that's really how it came about. Now, did you uh, rely completely on your memory or did you use some help from people? Uh, I, I think mostly on memory because what, what I find is, is, is as I read, like, you know, with all due respect, the Wikipedias of the world. Mm-hmm. I don't know where they get their information, but well, it's 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 not valid, you know. Uh, I think you have to be real careful uh, with your online data. Yeah. You know, they've had my wife's name wrong for ten years. I gave right. up. Right. You know, honey, I didn't do that. I did. That's not me. You know. <laughs> I saw two different uh, listings for your birth date too. Have you seen that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. One makes me younger. I like that one better. But uh, right. one says forty-two, and one says forty-four. Yeah, it's, it's forty-two. Yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, most people obviously know you from the Rascals and right. uh, some other stuff that you've done, which we'll go into. But uh, you started out with uh, Joey D. How did that come about? Well, it came about as a result of uh, working in the Catskill Mountains for a summer. Mm-hmm. You know, I took off uh, a, a summer for the school, and uh, 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 during that period of time, they they would have headliners come into the hotel. It was the Raleigh Hotel. And this group came in, Joey D and the Starlighters, which was, a, a, you know, a life-changing event because I met uh, not only Joey D, but I met the Brigatti uh, family, uh, David, in, in, in this case, was a singer with Joey. And then uh, as, as the summer passed and I was going to go back to school, uh, I got a phone call because their organ player had quit uh, in Europe on tour. And I got a, 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 a query, would I like to join them in Frankfurt, Germany? And I, and I, mm. I, I, I said, you know, I spoke to my dad and I, I said, I'd like to give this a try. What do you think? And, you know, he, he was a very conservative kind of dentist and he, you know, he was kind of flat. Wow. You, wow. You're going to go. Great. Why don't you go and give it a year, which I always thought was really wonderful to think you can make it in a year in the music business. That's 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 really great. Now, what year are we talking about here? We're talking about 1964. Okay. And uh, 63, 64, I think it was probably the end. I, I've got to check that because the only reason I have as as a date is that, and this is all in the book, by the mm-hmm. way, you know. Right. Uh, when I showed up in Europe, they were working in a club in both in Germany and in Sweden, and the group that was opening for him was called the Beatles. <laughs> so I walked in on that phenomenon before mm-hmm. they came to the United States, which I believe was 64. I think they did the Ed Sullivan show. Right. So no one knew about them in the States uh, uh, until that Ed Sullivan. But I witnessed that hysteria phenomenal in Germany. What was that like? What did you think of them? Well, um, first of all, uh, you know, you walk into a place where everybody's screaming at the top of their lungs and hysterical. And, and, and I'm not talking about yay. I'm talking about, ah! you know, like insanity. So I didn't know what was going on, you know. And uh, uh, guys with long hair, I, I never saw guys with long hair. That that, that was new. Uh, and then from a musical point of view, you know, I was I was at a, a, 
a period of my life where I was really making a decision between, you know, going back to pre-med or, uh, you know, jumping into this uh, insane world of uh, music. And, 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 and I listened to them, you know, what I could hear. You can't hear too much. And I said, wow, they sound like a singing group. You know, I wasn't really that crazy about the musicianship there. They were okay, you know. Uh, they uh, uh, would do American music, which, you know, I consider like, you know, R&B, uh, Chuck Berry, et cetera, et cetera. And frankly, they were, they were okay. You know, they, they were not like, you know, like, wow. But when they had the, the new Beatle music, which was unheard of at the time. You know, prior to that, people did not write their own songs. I mean, you know, uh, uh, Chuck Berry was an exception. Buddy Holly was an exception. Uh, uh, I, I just, I said, wow, what, what's that? I'm talking about like, the, you know, like, the, I think you can hear this. <laughs> I said, what is that, man? Wow, pretty cool. I mean, like, wow, and of course, everybody's going bananas. So it was really interesting because I, I really made a decision. I said, yeah, I could do this. Now, Joey ha had 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 a couple of hits. Was Who was the headliner? He was. Joey, okay. Joey was an established entity at that point, you know, right. uh, uh, you know, with the peppermint twist. And he had a, what kind of love is this? And, he, mm -hmm. you know, but I mean, my God, it was just uh, how do you follow that? It was it was amazing, you know. It was really amazing, and yet it made it made quite an impression on me because it was, you know, a total life change, a career change. Right. Did uh, did you get to meet him at the time? Uh, we met them over the years many times. You know, right. I mean, I, I I met them all. I I had a sort of a relationship with George Harrison because we have similar you know uh, beliefs as far mm -hmm. as like yoga and, and that right. world. I toured with Ringo. I did his all-star band. Paul, I've met a few times. And, you know, like John, uh, as much as anyone could know John, you know, John John was a little bit, you know, to himself, you know. And he had this habit. He squinted, you know, when he saw you because he couldn't see you. So you thought he didn't like you, you know. <laughs> okay. So uh, you come back from Europe. Right. And then what happens? Well, I came back from Europe and I stayed with Joey for a while on tour because he was now doing the United States. And that was fascinating because Joey did not fly. Uh, he was on the flight prior to Buddy Holly and Big Bopper going down. And, you know, the one I think it also got Ricky Nelson, you know, so he wouldn't fly. So I was able to see, you know, the United States by train or by car and Europe as well, you know. So I really, really enjoyed that because I was a young guy, I was a young kid. I was just like, you know, I mean, to his road manager to say, look, you gotta, you gotta keep your mouth closed because they're gonna think it's an ashtray. I'm going, uh, you know, all the time. I'm, wow, a new world. I mean, you know, you're an entertainer, you're a sideman in a band. There's no pressure on you as a sideman. You just, you just go along. You don't have to worry about ticket sales or anything, you know. I, I loved it, you know. And, um, and and then and then I, I don't know something changed and, and and I went to New York. I took a job out in Las Vegas, because we had this uh, this very interesting thing in those days, which I'm sure you remember, called the draft, <laughs> which was you know really you know you you couldn't really establish yourself in any kind of business or career until you got that at least out of the way in one way or another. Number two ninety nine. Really. <laughs> Well, I was in the early uh, part of that. I'm probably a little older than you, and they yeah. were a little bit more selective. 
in those days, and they said, nah, this is not a fighter. I don't think this guy's going to really help us out. We'll call you. If there's a nuclear event, you know, we'll, we'll call you. But So when that happened, I was able to start the group because I, I really felt like, okay, not, now I can, I, I can, you know, start something and, and, and feel free that I can at least, you know, make it or not break it on my merits. So you spent a lot of time uh, playing in Long Island and you were in the, like the New York scene. And I know you talk about uh, some of the people that you met and everything. One of them in particular was Hendrix. Tell me about that. Well, Jimmy was also part of that scene, you know, in New York for many years with the Isley brothers and a few other groups. And I mean, he was just so interesting, you know, because he was very shy, you know, and he was very tall. And, you know, in those days, uh, you know, like when you did a solo, you know, like, like the old days with the saxophones coming to the front microphone and playing, he, he would come to the front of the, the band he was with and mm -hmm. just blow like, oh, my God, like, what is this? This is amazing. And then he'd go right back, you know. He's very shy, you know. So I got to know him a little bit then, and, and then um, he went off to Europe. And, you know, that... that that whole episode out there is is historic because what happened is he was discovered by the English guitarists and by uh, uh, Chaz Chandler, the uh, uh, bass player for the Animals. Mm -hmm. Well, the next time I saw him was he was coming to New York and he was opening for us uh, at Central Park. I believe that was his first New York uh, appearance. And the shy guy was no longer shy. The shy guy was no longer leaning over to not show his height. The shy guy was standing like this with feather in his hat. Mm -hmm. And I said, man, what happened? What happened? And he said, little brother, I'm going to show you. And he went on that stage, and it was, like, amazing because what he, what he was doing was showing, you know, the new world that he was in the new Jimmy, and it was mind-blowing because he was just tearing it up, man. I mean, like on fire, you know, really on fire. It was it was a, a little bit scary for some of them rascal audiences, let me tell you, because he just was dynamic. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't have to tell you that because you have all know that now, but we didn't know that in those days, you know. So anyway, I had a little bit of a relationship with him, and I'm proud to say he was he was a friend. And uh, he was a charming, uh, he was a really nice man. People don't realize that, you know, that image on stage was not Jimmy. Jimmy Jimmy was a doll. Now, you mentioned that he gave you his watch. Yeah, he was just a giving kind of guy, you know. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, you know, not to be psychological about it, but I, I know he wanted, like most artists, he wanted to be uh, liked and accepted. And uh, you know, I understand he had a pretty bad childhood, a pretty rough childhood. So he would, you know, if you made a, gave a compliment to him, I said, "Wow, that's nice." And he said, "Yeah, well, here, here, man." I said, "What do you mean here?" No, I, I just said it's nice. He said, "No, no, you got to have this, man. That's that's part of my religion." Yeah, he was just a good guy, you know, a real good guy. Maybe a little bit too good. Hmm. Okay, so uh, let's just move forward a little bit. How did you meet Sid Bernstein, and and what what kind of influence did that have on you? Well, and the, and the band, business wise. I mean, it changed us from a you know. A, $200 group to a $1,000 group instantly, you know what I mean? Because uh, basically what happened is we, we were offered a job uh, um, in the Hamptons. And, uh, you know, for people who know the Hamptons now, it's like the place for the, you know, Hoi Polloi to go and, you know, all of the record execs and all the movie stars and all the people that can afford that go out there for the summer. 
Well, it's been like that for years. So I knew when we were offered that job, it was a place called The Barge, that if we were going to get discovered, this is where we are going to get discovered. And that's what happened. A gentleman came in by the name of Walter Hyman, who was a, uh, a businessman. He was a textile uh, magnet, you know, and uh, he saw us and, and, and he realized, hmm, I got a friend named Sid Bernstein. Let me bring him in here. And Sid came in, and so we had a management uh, uh, contract offered to us, and uh, we had two, two fine managers at the time, Walter and Sid, Wall Sid Management. They ch immediately changed our life, doubled our salary in this place that we were playing, and uh, brought in the record companies. It was a life-changing event again. So, you know, life-changing event after life-changing event is wonderful. Now, for those that don't know, Sid Bernstein uh, is the person, the promoter, who brought the Beatles to America promoted a lot of other people who work with many, many people, passed away a few years ago, but he was, he was a character. Yeah, did you, I don't know if you knew him, but he yeah, was, I knew him. Yeah. He was a character. And, you know, he not only brought us, I mean, he brought, uh, like, for example, he was the first to bring uh, martial arts uh, to Madison Square Garden. He brought karate and uh, taekwondo before anybody really knew what that was. He also brought uh, Bobby Fischer and Boris Spassky, chess, you know, championship. Uh, he could see what people w were going to like, and he would buy it, and he would mm. bring it in. Promote it is the right word. Not right. Okay. So whose idea was it to wear the costumes? <laughs> oh, Jesus, that's another thing, man. Well, you know, in those days, uh, the clubs were 21 and over, and they demanded uh, 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 a suit and tie. You, know, you had to have a jacket and tie, which was so cumbersome. It was impossible. So we, and I don't, I'm not sure of the history of that. I, I, Dino, I give Dino credit for it, but he doesn't want it. You know, <laughs> they came up with it with it with it with an outfit. Uh, there was this fellow from Jersey. Why don't you wear knickers and a shirt? And the the the, the club owner said, "Well, nah, uh, uh, I like it, but put a tie on." So we had to end up with a tie anyway. You know what I'm saying? Which you know you're, you're singing. You know you got this, but uh, it, it's just a, a way to kind of get seen you know, and, and to get out of those suits. So do you think Angus Young was a fan? Is that where he got it from? I don't know. I, I mean, like I say, I think that's a very English and, of course, Australian look, you know, the, the knickers and, you know, all that. Uh, but I, I hope so. So uh, you had a, a pretty nice run of, uh, of hits. Yes. The first, uh, what, uh, Ain't Gonna Eat Up My Heart Anymore? Was that the first one? That's, okay. That started the process, yes. Right, and then you started writing your own stuff. So, obviously, I want to ask you about uh, a couple of the different songs. Uh, how about uh, "You Better Run"? Well, "You Better Run" uh, was written prior to you know the Rascals. It was it had to do with a certain relationship that I was having that was uh, not too pleasant. So, uh, actually, "I Better Run" I should have called it, <laughs> you know. But uh, you know, the the clubs at that time did not uh, want or allow. Uh, personal songs are you know original songs they wanted covers that's all they wanted uh, they basically what they what they were interested in was you uh uh coming to the club dancing and drinking and and they did could care less about any kind of originality so i would have to go out of my way to find songs that were actually covers that were actually records which is how i found uh, you know Good Lovin' and I found Mustang Sally. Uh, I had to literally go to a record store and purchase it so that I could prove to the uh, you know, proprietor that it was not an original, but it may not have been a hit, but it was still a cover, mm -hmm. you know? So 
that really helped with like our first number one record, which was Good Love It. It's a beautiful morning. Well, you know, as as we started to progress as writers and, you know, we started to get acceptance as writers, which is a really wonderful, wonderful thing that happened to us. Um, the Times, uh, you know, basically we just came off of a really hit record groove in there. We, we, we captured the market and that. And we were in Hawaii and uh, I, I was in love and uh, everything was kind of really nice. And I said, wow. How about if we write a song basically that makes everybody feel like this whenever they hear it? And that's that was written in Oahu, as a matter of fact. So beautiful morning. Okay, people gotta be free, which was it was that like one of your biggest? Yeah, it was one of our biggest, and it's one of our most lasting, you know, as well as beautiful morning. They they both are uh, I was working, we were working for Robert Kennedy campaign. I was very a uh, very avid uh, follower of we wanted to change. I wanted to change. I think we're still looking for a change here many, many years later. But I, I really felt that he uh, embodied such a change. And uh, I was seeing a woman at the time who was actually present at that assassination, that horrible assassination, when he actually won a primary and at the uh, at the celebration he, he got assassinated. It just... Um, it triggered something in me because, you know, as you know, when, when people work for a campaign then or now, they're pretty, pretty avid. They're pretty enthusiastic. And all of a sudden, just to be taken like that, you know, uh, and it was right after Martin Luther King, you know, and it just uh, it, it maybe want to write this song and say, look, you know, we've got we've got to make a statement. Why? Because I think we all have to make a statement at some point in time just to let people know where you're at so what was that like i mean you have one hit after another i mean you had a greatest hits album out almost instantly how did that feel magic you know very thankful blessed it was it was a joyous uh, a part of my life i mean because i mean look you're you're actually going into a studio which was state-of-the-art at that time we, we at atlantic had the only eight track except for Les Paul. Everybody else was four-track. Uh, you can imagine the Beatles making all that music on four tracks. Shows you the talent mm. that was in the room in terms of engineers, you know. Uh, four tracks, you think of now we have unlimited tracks. But, you know, it, it's hard to even explain the, the joy that you have when you write something, you record something, people like it, they buy it, and it's a hit. It's just... It's wonderful, which is another one of my songs. You know, I mean, I, I just thought it was, it was amazing. And, and for anybody to, to not like that in terms of like, you know, group members was shocking to me because most of our peers were over there getting shot at, hmm. you know? So th that, of course, gets you on the Ed Sullivan show, which was everybody's dream at the time. What did that do for you? What do you remember about that? Well, I remember a lot of things about that. You know, this was, uh, this was, uh, you know, basically in those days uh, that was the uh, outlet to the uh, to the masses. You know, because, you know, we had a few television programs that were musically oriented, Hullabaloo and Shindig, and and then there was the local ones like Clay Cole. You know, every 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 municipality had a, an outlet, but Ed Sullivan was the big one. If you got on that show, uh, you were seen. You know. Uh, all over the United States, which you needed to do to have a hit record. Um, there's a lot to be said about that Ed Sullivan show. It was a seven-day rehearsed event. 
we worked for seven days. We got up in the morning at 7 a.m., went there to work. And on Saturday night, he had a full concert in front of an audience with no televised, no television. And then the eighth day, uh, I'm sorry, the seventh day, uh, you know, he rested, you know, because we did the live show. And it was, it was so chaotic because it was live. And what I mean by that is that after all that work, we're on stage for, what, two minutes, two and a half, maybe? We used to doing two-hour shows, you know, and, and all that energy is just pent up, you know, and you did it two minutes, and then you're... So Eddie, I was living with him at the time, used to come back and wreck our apartment. <laughs> you know? What Did you meet Ed? Oh, yeah. Yeah, what was he like? Ah, he was kind of stoic. Yeah. Kind Most of... people tell me, though, they do the Ed Sullivan show, and the next day they walk on the street, and everybody knows him. Well, yeah. That's because, you know, he was huge. Yeah. But as, as an individual, you know, he, he was from another generation. And we could tell that he really was not enamored with the rock and roll people. <laughs> you know, I had a I had a run in with 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 his staff because, you know, after our sixth appearance, it was time for us to get a good dressing room. You know what I mean? <laughs> and he would give it to the to the old timers, you know, the the puppets. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I said, hey, you know what, man? You want you want us here, man? Seriously, you, you got to treat us a little better, you know, with all due respect. But I thank him and his staff and his, you know, for, for putting us up there. But, you know, enough enough already. Hmm. Yeah. All right. So you, you guys uh, did something um, when you were at the height of your career yeah. that some people say was sort of a negative. I mean, as far as your career, that's when you announced you wanted to have uh, African-American groups as your opening act or you weren't going to play. Yeah. What, what was, uh, what happened when you did that? Well, first of all, you know, uh, to be, exp to, to explain the thought process behind it. I mean, it's twofold. I mean, once, you know, as I say in my, in my book, uh, you know, I, I've been uh, the, the minority all my life. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we, we moved into a town where Italians were like uh, Italians, you know, I mean, we're not Italians. We don't come from Italy, you know? So I felt that uh, prejudice for want of a better word as a boy. It stuck with me my whole life. It's still here. Second of all, we were on a label, which was Atlantic. We were the first white act on the r black and red label. Our record sales, our audiences were mixed. They were half black and half white. And not only did I appreciate that, but I wanted to cater to that. So one day we were doing a show, and there was a group opening up for us who was a black act, but was not a black act, was a pop act. I think it was called Young Holt Trio. Young mm -hmm. Holt Unlimited. And they came back to me and they said, Felix, thank you so much for having us. We don't get a chance to play in front of white audiences, you know. And I said, you know what, man? We don't get a chance to play in front of black audiences. Why don't we do this? Hmm. Now, I still don't know why don't we do this because the radio stations were mixed at that time before they started to become really like demographically oriented. Mm -hmm. We had, you know, Motown and we had folk music. We had Peter, Paul and Mary. We had, you know, like Johnny Mathis. We had, oh, but you can't do it live. Why? Well, I found out why, you know, it caused a lot of difficulty. You know, you just, if you're thinking from a business standpoint, obviously, you, you know, you're, you're not, I wasn't. So was there uh, some uh, blowback because of that? I mean, what happened? Exactly that, you know, like you're not coming here. Yeah. I mean, it's so sick because 
you know, you get into philosophy, we get into music. I mean, what was music before, you know, I mean, classical music, the only drums that I'm aware of are, are, are war drums. <laughs> you know what I mean? That you're either marching, you know, uh, you know, or it's thunder. That's it could be thunder. Right. right. But our, our music come from Africa was all rhythm. So when you put the two together, you've got popular music. Take the rhythm out of popular music. It stinks. Right. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? For the most part, nobody's going to get up and dance to harp, you know? Right. So wh why, why are you, like, denying the fact of life that, you know, like, it's a mix? It's, you know, and, and, and I, I, I just kind of still scratch my head and say, you know, I still don't get it. You know, you don't get it. <laughs> so anyway, it, it was just a heartfelt thing. And, you know, like I say, from a business point of view, I don't know. It, it hurt us, you know, but it also helped us because here we are 45, 50 years after talking. Right, about right. And you're talking about your life story. So and I'm All proud right, so of part of that. Let me tell you. Yes. OK, so uh, you have this massive run on Atlantic and then you switch over to Columbia and uh uh, Eddie and uh, Gene leave. What's what's the story there? Well, you know, uh, Eddie had left twice before that. I think you know he he, he just didn't want to do it anymore. He, he wasn't happy with the uh, the whole situation, you know. And Atlanta kind of picked up on that, and uh, you know they didn't really want the group. They wanted me, and me being the uh, socialist that I was, I said, "No, oh, how can I possibly leave my band? Oh my God, you know." And then Eddie quit. He left. And then uh, Gene, uh, you know, it was a sad situation because of the way that happened. But uh, Dino said, well, we want to change everything. I said, oh, yeah, what, what do you mean by that? Well, you're gonna, you know, and so Gene kind of left, you know. Now we had a contract with a new label, Columbia, and uh, we didn't have a band. So I, I had to find a band. I found an excellent band. And I stepped out, really stretched out, maybe a little too much, from the AM to the FM. And... Um, you know, it just, it worked in, in other countries, like in Japan, it worked very well. In Canada, it worked very well. United States, you know, they said, well, it's not the Rascals. It's not really the Rascals. Well, who is it? The Rolling Stones? It was, it was, the, it was the Rascals. You know, it was the new Rascals or whatever you want to call it. You know, those periods of time, they, they, it, 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 they, they still don't make sense to me why somebody would leave, you know, a, a group uh, with a, a very lucrative contract on the table. Mm-hmm. So you, you did what? Uh, four albums for Columbia? I did two albums with the so-called Rascal Group, and then and then I went on and did two albums with Epic uh, as a solo artist. Yes. Right. Okay. So let's uh, fast forward. You, you you split up what the end of the seventies for for good or? Oh no, seventy two. We split up. Seventy two. You split up. Okay. That was it? Yeah. All right. So let's fast forward to the, the one another one of the highlights. Tell me about uh, your meeting with uh, Steve Van Zandt and your induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well, one was before the other. Uh, right. You know, one had something to do with the other. You see, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, like most Hall of Fames, they have a nominating committee. And, uh, you know, what happens is basically if you're nominated, then you go, it gets a vote. And the vote is done by all of, all of us who are actually inductees. But it's the nominating process, which is really the... The, the, the test mm -hmm. and if you don't get nominated obviously you can't get voted in and i know people who well, i'll tell you a great story chubby checkers one that you know he's he's still angry <laughs> he's not in and another story i have is eddie money he rest his soul you know eddie eddie used to call me up before he passed he said phil 
you got to get me into the Hall of Fame. My kids don't think I'm anything. I said, no, they love you, man. Come on. What are you talking about? He says, no, seriously, man. What can I do? Sometimes I feel like the Pete Rose of rock and roll, you know, because <laughs> evidently he was not that good to the press. You know, I don't know. So Steve Rizant was very, very, very uh, helpful in getting us nominated because I guess he's part of the committee. So was Frankie Valli, so was Phil Spector, so was Dion DiMucci. We had a lot of friends there. We finally got, we got nominated, we got in. And as, as a result of that, you know, it, it's a great event. There was no question about it, you know. And uh, years later, uh, we heard from Steve. Uh, he wanted, he, it started off with, a, with a, a, a thing that Bruce and he would have been doing for years, the Kristen Carr Cancer Program. Sure. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, one of my daughters had cancer at that time, so it was very important for me to do that. And that was a harbinger of, of like, well, let's try something else with the rascal group, you know, the original guys. Um, I have mixed emotions about it because, you know, like as I say, uh, it, it ended more than once. That means we actually had two endings, you know what I mean? One was bad enough, but two was, was rough. But it was fun. It was good. And a lot of good things came out of that for both parties. So when he proposed the um, Once Upon a Dream tour, which is what we're talking about, which uh, I did see also in Philadelphia, uh -huh. um, what, uh, I mean, people have been trying to get the four of you together. You're one of the few groups where all the members are still around. So what did he have that nobody else was able to do? Perseverance. He wouldn't give up. Did you say no the first few times? Yeah, I, I really did. Because, you know, like I say, you know, uh, you know, it, it, it's difficult, and, and I, I didn't put these feelings, uh, I didn't really express them in the book. I mean, when you get a divorce, you know, it, it's, it's, not, it's not the most pleasant experience in the world. And unfortunately, you know, like, it, it kind of leaves a little bit of a scar, saying, well, should I, should I do this again? You know, I mean, it's people who go back to their, you know, their relationships, usually those relationships don't work. Mm. You know, and, 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 you know, they can blame whatever, whoever, however you want, but why, you know, pick at a scab you know so i i really didn't didn't want to do it uh um uh and uh i was persuaded to do it and and i think you know with all due respect uh it, it, when, when you look at it from a musical point of view it will we'll, we'll just stay with that rather than the emotional mm -hmm. i was very structured uh i was very kind of like uh you know in a in a bind as far as you know when you do a show like that it's all timed it's all everything is you know by rote i left classical music primarily because of that i couldn't create and 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 i'm spontaneous when i'm on stage now you know i have a band that you know i kind of tempt them with where's he going now you know what i'm saying and they follow me you know they go where i go and the audience loves it so uh, i felt really hampered you know in that in that so let me ask you this. If I were to talk to the other three guys, am I going to get four different stories? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, that's, the, that's, that's, if we tell someone a joke, try to, try to hear that joke back four years from now and watch what happens. So it's going to take an outsider to do a biography on the entire group, maybe to get the real story or. And I'll still... pray, I'll pray for him right? <laughs> or her. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, there's no real story. I mean, it's each, each person's individual story of, 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 uh, what happened and how it went, you know, but I mean, you know, it, 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 you, you really, really have to enjoy yourself when you work at, at, at my age, you know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't need to do the, all this. I mean, look at Ringo. I mean, Ringo doesn't need to ever sing a song in his life, 
but he does because he has a blast. What was that like being on the Ringo tour? Oh, it was, it was wild, man. First of all, did made, he remember you from Joey D? No, no, he, he didn't even. <laughs> did see you me. tell him about uh, it? You know, I don't know. I, I don't know if we did. You know, I I, I don't know because uh, you know I met Mark Farner there, Randy Bachman there, Billy Preston, rest his soul, John Entwistle there, his wonderful family Zach on the drums, uh, and uh, his wonderful wife Barb. It it, it was a it was a pleasure working with Ringo because, like I say, all of the people that are involved in that endeavor, in that event, which he still does, they love to play. Hmm. So uh, I know that you've worked with other people, you've produced other people, and I just want to touch on a couple of those. What was uh, Laura Nero like, and how did that come about? It came about as, as a result of David Geffen, who was managing her at the time, who introduced me to her. And his very words were, how would you like to meet the most impossible person you've ever been around in the studio? And it turned out to be the exact opposite. I mean, I just fell in love, love with her and her music. Matter of fact, I'm doing a thing for her in, uh, in her uh, legacy in May. I believe there's a Broadway show that's coming out that's mm -hmm. uh, called Eli's Coming. She was uh, probably the most pure artist I've ever met in my life. I mean, in that, you know, she she had a vision or visions every time she wrote a song and she wanted that vision represented on uh, a, a vinyl at those days in those days. Mm -hmm. And uh, she didn't let anybody stand in her way to get that. So it was our job you know, as producers to, you know, enhance that. And I used to tell her all the time, you know, some of us would like to make money on these things, you know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but not her. She just wanted to have that art art. Who are some of the other people that you uh, produced? Well, I produced uh, people, Jimmy Spheris. I, 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 right, that's right. I, I produced a group called Deadly Nightshade, which was mm -hmm. interesting. Uh, I produced a lot of people whose name you don't know because it, 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 it didn't, didn't make that level. But I really enjoy producing. I, I, I really like it, you know. How did you get connected to Maggie Bell? Uh, through uh, Atlantic, uh, our, our attorney. Uh, was a representative of Zeppelin, and that was uh, she was on their label, Swan Song, and uh, Maggie, Maggie was something, something else, man. Yes, I uh, I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed everything I do, man. Like I say, and if I don't, I leave. Do you remember the session for Here, There, and Everywhere? Yes, with Luther Vandross. Of course, I do. Yeah. And uh, wasn't there a guy playing drums for the last time on that session? Uh, yes, John Bonham. Yeah. How did that come about? Well, it came about again as, as a result of being on the Swan Song label. And uh, John and uh, uh, I guess he was part of the, I guess Maggie and they, they knew each other. And yeah. he came in and he, he was a really interesting guy, you know, because, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, people should realize that, you know, uh, the tax structure in England was so severe that uh, a lot of the groups had to live out of the country for over six months of the year. And, uh, you know, like I, 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 I read a story once where he, he couldn't even go home for a child uh, being born. And, you know, like, uh, I think it really took a toll on him, hmm. you know, because you know, you're away from your family because of monetary reasons. And, you know, money, is it the root of all evil? I, I tell you, it, it could be, because I think it really destroyed him, you know, in terms of like his personal life. So it, it, did you just do that one track or did you do a whole album with her? 
we did a whole album. We did a whole album. And the concept that I had was I was going to write her one song, which I did, and uh, uh, the rest we were going to do all fantastic songs redone. You know, mm -hmm. one was here, there, and everywhere. And the, the good fortune that I had on that is I, I was able to hire Luther Vandross, who at that time was doing backgrounds and, and commercials for the United States Army, you know. And uh, he was given, you know, complete artistic control over the backgrounds, and they were magnificent. And later he thanked me for that because it opened up a whole new door for him just to come in and arrange people's vocals. Mm background he was great fantastic. fantastic did that album ever come out it did it, it did. did yeah i'm not sure what it did or what it didn't do because swan song you know i don't know if it was a tax write-off or what it was but you know they had some good things on there i think they had bad company on there if i'm not mistaken. yeah they did they did okay all right so let's uh right now you're out you're touring still with the your own version of the rascals you've got your uh autobiography out you got a new album coming now and then tell me about that well, basically, uh, what I what I what I tried to do is take five songs that influenced me, re-record them, and then write five new ones to kind of go along with that trend. Hmm. And so, you know, I, I I think if people like this, I'd really like to continue to do this because, you know, we took five fantastic songs. We did uh, "Slip Away," you know, we did uh, uh, "Higher and Higher," we did uh, "Spanish Harlem." When we did some songs that people might not know, there's a Ray Charles song called "Barry Ann," and there's a, another song that uh, was a group called Bobby Bore, which was called uh, uh, "Searching for My Baby," and. God, I, I, I mean, I had a ball doing this. And then yeah. the COVID hit, kind of hit during that period of time, so we were able to continue it online. Now, you live in Nashville. Did you record it there? Yes. And uh, any guests on there or just your usual band? Uh, no, or just my, my usual band. You know, we, 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 uh, we were kind of locked down, you know, so as far as getting any guests, uh, they would have to have been online as well. And, you know, basically it was just a, a home production. It was not like anything like with big, 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 big monetary uh, 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 people around it or behind it. So uh, we'll see what happens. If people like this, I'd really like to do it again. Okay, great. Now I want to ask you some questions. As I mentioned, it's the 75th anniversary of sure. Atlantic next year, and I know you made a couple of references, but what was it like when you got signed by Atlantic? They didn't have a white rock band then, right? I know, yeah. To me, I'm walking around uh, halls where every one of my record collection <laughs> either recorded or lived. Uh, it was uh, it was amazingly, fantastically wonderful. You know, I mean, like I say, Sam and Dave is over there. Otis Redding is over here. Ray Charles had been here. You know, John Coltrane was in this room. Miles Davis. I mean, I'm looking at this place like, are you kidding me, man? Where am I? You're so did Atlantic you record in the Atlantic studios at the we time, had, the same place yeah. where Cream did Israeli Gears? And we had free studio time, man. And let me tell you, people can say what they want. You know, it's like when we're talking about the Once Upon a Dream. There's good and there's bad and everything. You know, a lot of people talk about Atlantic, but let me tell you something. That was magic working there. How important was it? You, you work with uh, Arif, right? Arif and Tom Dowd. How important were those two guys? Well, you know, uh, it's it's immeasurable. Uh, I mean, it, it's like the Beatles with George Martin. It's immeasurable. First of all, the knowledge that I gained from Arif uh, about how to be a producer, how to be a gentleman, 
how to deal with three or four crazy young guys in the studio that, you know, like Tom used to say to us, you know, when you get around the music desk, you know, which they built that music desk, Atlantic built that board, there was no boards, you know, he created the faders that went up and down instead of the pots that you turn. Anyway, you're around giants, absolute giants. And, you know, like, for example, the group would say to him, oh, I can't hear my, my guitar. And, you know, I'm sure that he must have heard that like 10,000 times. And he would say, you see that meter? You see that red dot? If you go up, somebody goes down. <laughs> you know, <laughs> The knowledge that, you know, we were able to gain from him. And, and then yeah. Arif was just a gem. I mean, he was like a... I call him like my musical, uh, you know, encyclopedia. I mean, like basically, you have an idea. What is it? Is it French? Is it? Uh, is it? Is it African? Is it? Uh, 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 you name it. Uh, I can do it, because he can arrange any thought you had into, you know, strings, horns, whatever. A joy, a joy working with him. Okay. So, what was Ahmet like? Well, Ahmet was a real character. You know, I mean, he was obviously a very astute businessman, and you know their story. I mean, their story is 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 unique, and anybody who does not know the Atlantic story should look it up. There's a wonderful volume out, a book out. I mean, their anthologies of music is like the history of 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 American music. Uh, he was a very interesting guy uh, in terms of the fact that a lot of people don't know he was also a songwriter. You know, I mean, he had to change his name, and you know, to when he wrote, "Take a letter, Maria." Send it to my wife, you know. Uh, I, I mean, he and his brother Neshui, uh, uh, they 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 made a label that changed the musical world. He was um, very very wild child. <laughs> I must mm -hmm. say, uh, I, I just can never thank those guys enough. And then Jerry Wexler, of course, who was kind of like the person that I would have to meet with every time I had to have an argument about, you know, what record we should release. I really admired those guys and uh, people, and, and, and I'm thankful to God that they gave us the opportunity to make music on their label. So uh, what was it like when Ahmet first came to see you play? Uh, well, uh, I, 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 I can't remember him actually coming to see us play, but I remember him sending Tom out and, you know, the, the hierarchy. But Ahmet was, uh, uh, I, mean, I, I mean, I have so many stories about Ahmet that, you know, like I say, no. they just, Feel they, free to tell us one or two. We got uh, an anniversary yeah, coming up. I, 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 They're I, making I, a movie of his life, you know. Oh, I did not know. He was a wild child, man, because, uh, I mean, I have stories about him and his peers. I, I, I'll tell you one that was told to me. One night, he was to be given an, an honorary award at one of the many events that he was invited to in New York City. And I understand that some of his friends came to his apartment and tied him to his chair. <laughs> So he couldn't get there. Oh my God, those guys, those people—they spun at a very, very high level, man. You know, there's no way I could keep up with them. And I just remember, like for example, uh, uh, Otis Redding calling him omelet. You know, yeah. omelet. You know, uh, you know. What can I say? I mean, the the admiration that I have for their uh, their label and their expertise and the people that they brought brought to the public. That, you know, one, one story, like, for example, was uh, uh, Bobby Blubland, you know. They always wanted Bobby Blubland, and his manager would never release him from his contract. A lot of people don't know Bobby Blubland. But let me tell you something. If, if he had been allowed on Atlantic 
everybody would have known about them. Look what they did with Wilson Pickett, you know, and with Solomon Burke, you know, and, and with King Curtis, you know. I mean, maybe people don't know those names, but you want to hear some music, man? Look up these names. Hmm. Okay. Well, this has been great. I want to just ask you a couple other things. Now, first of all, you've been doing or you've done a couple of music infomercials. What, how do you like doing that? Uh, well, you know, they pay well. Right. And, and for the most part, you know, they're, they're kind of easy to do. You know, you meet new people. The, the uh, gentleman who, uh, who did the Flower Power Cruise uh, is the gentleman. Alan Rubens. Yeah, he got he's me. He's a friend on. of mine. Yeah. Well, he's a mention and a half. So mm -hmm. you can tell him thank you because he got me into most of those. Okay. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you remember working on an infomercial in the 90s with Don Kirshner and Davy Jones? Yes. yes. I produced that. Oh, did you? Wow. So when people that. say to you, why it's, you can tell them, you, you know, that was the first music infomercial. Was it? That was an interesting, I never knew that. That's great. Thank you. All right. Well, listen, I want to wish you a lot of luck. I Thank appreciate you. you taking the time. And when you see Alan Rubens again, you tell him you made the first music infomercial. I will. All right, Felix, look, uh, lots of luck. Thank you. Appreciate your good, time. Good luck with the new album. Good luck with the book. Hey, Kenny, thank you. Always so a great show when you're out there. I want to remind you that this is The Rock Podcast with Denny Somak, and you can contact me through the website, therockpodcast.com. So that's it for this episode. Tell your friends, keep in touch. Goodbye for now. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.